Welcome back to There is a Season, the Pete Seeger podcast. There is a Season is a podcast devoted to reevaluating the work, music, and politics of the late American folk musician Pete Seeger. On this show, we work towards rediscovering and getting more in touch with Pete Seeger's contributions to better understand how we can more fully apply them now and in the future. Join us today as we discuss the ending of people's songs and Seeger's connection to the Peekskill Riots of 1949. During the summer of 1949, Pete Seeger was busy building his new home in Beacon, New York. Pete worked feverishly in felling trees and building the family's soon-to-be-log cabin, which would be their first dwelling on the property. The Seeger family was not entirely alone in their construction endeavors, however, as many fellow folkies and other friends from the city would come up to see the place, and Pete would put them to work right away. Lee Hayes amusingly referred to this as Seeger's slave camps upon discovering that there was work to do and one wasn't just going to be allowed to freely hang out in the country for a weekend without doing some manual labor. Being on his 17 acres in Beacon was, in many respects, Pete Seeger's dream. It was Ernest Thompson's Seton come to life in a more real way for him. Seeger enjoyed the more rustic lifestyle and physical labor that this transition required. While he remained close to New York City, of course, in many respects, he'd moved on from the urban lifestyle. When interviewed by Izzy Young many decades later in 1988, Seeger reflected that the city is naturally a place where connections get made, in his case meeting Woody, Leadbelly, and Lee Hayes. But if he hadn't gotten out of the city, he, quote, would have been going 30 hours a day, eight days a week, unquote. Pete also wanted to slow down after the remarkably busy schedule he had been keeping with people's songs. Most writers who have examined the whole People's Songs phenomenon have concluded that the organization was forced to fold not for artistic reasons, but mainly for political ones. While People's Songs was focused on writing, performing, and distributing songs for unions and other political organizations, they rarely focused on the musical or aesthetic aspects of the music. Whether a melody or chord progression was good or new was not the cause of the challenges Seeger and the national organization faced. Any song that the New York office or regional offices would end up putting out had all the guts and issues that affected masses of people. On one end of it, author Robbie Lieberman emphasizes that workers didn't connect with the music as succinctly as Seeger and others in the organization had hoped. Erwin Silber is quoted as saying that while workers were excited that folk musicians were singing about them at hootenannies, workers more often saw it as entertainment rather than political socialization or a form of organizing. Woody Guthrie wrote at one point that the songs that they'd written for the Wallace campaign hadn't been political enough, and if they had been, things would have been different. While this sounds compelling, it likely would not have changed the outcome of the organization, though. But overall, none of this was really the major issue. It was audience and public interpretation that ultimately mattered. While 1946 was a big year for strikes, and a big first year for People's Songs membership, The strikes that were happening across America now were very different from the strikes led by the Communist Party's radical popular front of the 1930s. Post-war anti-communism had infiltrated the CIO and its affiliated unions with the new policy of so-called responsible unionism. 
Now Labour would begin operating with a less radical, more liberal formation, which relied on favour of the government and the Democratic Party. In short, disciplined Labour would come to replace the radical unionism of the pre-war era. In addition to prerogatives by locals and CIO national leadership, anti-communist liberal labor policy was seen in new laws like the 1947 Taft-Hartley Act, which restricted union organizing rights. All this is to say that when the majority of the CIO unions, with whom Seeger and the folk musicians had established a close relationship before the war, had succumbed to anti-communism and liberal labor politics, some argue that Earl Browder, once president of Communist Party USA, was to blame because he made deals with industrialists during and for the war, and now capital had reorganized and was coming back with a revankist vengeance. Communist International was frustrated about Browder's decisions as well, although these forces were bigger than Earl Browder alone. Either way, the post-war labor climate had moved to the right, and this was seen when the CIO began to actively distance itself from Seeger and the political music of People's Songs. Indeed, at People's Songs' first and only national convention in Chicago, where Seeger was elected national chairman, only 60 people attended. Now, it is true that Seeger and others had had memberships in the party historically, but like Pete, many were not orthodox party members, and the party never really saw Seeger himself as a committed member anyway. This didn't matter, though. It was the history of a relationship that labeled people's songs negatively. Local unions had even begun writing and publishing their own songbooks to avoid using the resources made available by people's songs. Earl Robinson had even been personally attacked in a Time magazine article that said he was singing and writing songs, quote, too close to the party line, unquote. After this, Robinson stopped getting calls from schools and unions to sing and write for them. Eventually, even in other public spheres, people's songs would be cancelled, such as the administration of Brooklyn College shutting down the student chapter. The content of the songs did matter to a certain extent in all this, not that they weren't radical enough like Woody thought, but the topical and social issues discussed, like housing and unemployment, were seen as too radical to even overtly mention. To talk about these things this way was seen as communist, another reason the CIO ultimately rejected People's Songs. Additionally, the fact that People's Songs had functioned as an organizing base for Wallace and the Progressive Party in 1948 didn't help matters either. The post-war liberal anti-communism became further evident when Harry Bridges was even fired from his position as regional director for the state of California by the national leadership of the CIO because he refused to stop supporting Wallace to support Truman instead. The United Auto Workers had also attacked Wallace, labeling the campaign and Progressive Party as communists. While the Progressive Party was not created by the Communist Party per se, Communist Party USA did play a major role in organizing the campaign. Wallace had been somewhat naive about all this, later asking one of his staff if the people working for him were also members of the Communist Party. Either way, the Progressive Party was seen as communist, and because people's songs were involved, their radical labor politics became further isolated and unions further abandoned them. But even before the campaigns of 48, it was in September 1947 when the FBI listed people's songs as one of the party-line organizations in their publication Counterattack, a weekly newsletter founded by three former members of the FBI, published from 1947 to 1955, and listed individuals in groups that were allegedly politically subversive or communist sympathizers. 
This publicly cemented the image of people's songs as a front for the Communist Party, no matter how far from the truth that imagination really was. David Dunaway makes an astute observation that, ironically, the FBI paid more attention to people's songs than the rest of the Communist Party or many workers even did. But by 1949, anyway, Seeger had moved away from the Communist Party, which years later he stated he had put off doing for too long. Now, being away from the everyday hustle and bustle of New York City, he was aiming for new horizons. But in late August and early September of 1949, a particular series of events occurred that became the first of many similar political challenges that Pete and his fellow musicians would experience for many years to come. Much of this had to do with the anti-communist forces that damaged people's songs. These events have come to be known as the Peekskill Riots of 1949. What culminated in this now notorious, yet still marginally acknowledged sequence of events was a concert planned for late August 1949 at Lakeland Picnic Grounds in Peekskill, New York, to function as a fundraiser for the Civil Rights Congress. Founded in 1946, the Civil Rights Congress functioned as a combination of organizing protests and demonstrations to raise national and international awareness about civil rights issues, and was one of the first organizations to provide legal services to help blacks be represented in cases where they were sentenced to death. The headliner for this concert fundraiser for the Congress was to be a man named Paul Robeson. People's artists who were organizing the show and the Civil Rights Congress, with which Seeger was already involved, asked Seeger to open the concert for Robeson. For those listeners unfamiliar, Paul Robeson, born in 1898, was a black actor, lawyer, football player, and bass baritone singer. Robeson's mother, Maria, was of mixed European, Native American, and black ancestry, and his father, William, was born into and escaped slavery. Robeson had been an All-American at Rutgers University and later went to Columbia University Law School. He practiced law briefly, but left his firm and the profession altogether when a white secretary refused to take dictation from him because he was black. Later in the 1930s, Robeson got into acting on Broadway and eventually in Hollywood, starring in the well-known films The Emperor Jones, Body and Soul, and the musical Showboat, which showcased his now-famous version of the song Old Man River. Robeson is also recognized for his singing of traditional spirituals and his cover of Earl Robinson's tune, Joe Hill, a song about the framing and murder by firing squad of Swedish labor organizer and IWW member Joseph Hillstrom in Utah in 1915. By the 1940s, 
Robeson was internationally famous, not just for his talent and career, but also because he had sung for audiences in the Soviet Union back in 1934. After this visit, he publicly stated about his experience in Europe that, quote, Here I am not a Negro, but a human being for the first time in my life. I walk in full human dignity, unquote. Because of this Soviet recognition, and because Robeson had actively been involved with the Communist Party in the 30s, his reputation was well known by those who disagreed with him. Now in 1949, this would be the fourth time Robeson had sung in this area of the Hudson River Valley. Unbeknownst to some, those who did not like Robeson because of his background and because he would be coming into their community yet again to sing would try to stop the Peekskill concert from happening. Indeed, an article published in the local newspaper, the Peekskill Evening Star, presented many of the locals' feelings about the upcoming concert on August 27th, saying about Paul Robeson that, quote, The singer is being presented by people's artists, quote, for the Harlem chapter of the Civil Rights Congress, unquote, according to posters appearing in the neighborhood. It becomes evident every ticket purchased for the Peekskill concert will drop nickels and dimes into the till basket of an un-American political organization, unquote. The article ended by saying, quote, the time for tolerant silence that signifies approval is running out, unquote. While this perspective may have existed, people's artists had no intention of stopping the show, and plans went forward for the concert at Lakeland Acres Picnic Grounds in Peekskill. Given the fact that Seeger lived only about a dozen miles away, this was a short distance for him to travel. He brought along his mother, Constance, who was visiting the family in Beacon, and they arrived at the picnic grounds in Peekskill around 7 p.m., about an hour before the concert was scheduled to begin. But when trying to gain entrance to the concert, Seeger and Constance encountered a major traffic jam. Seeger stuck his head out and asked a nearby policeman if he could get him into the concert somehow because he was a performer, to which the policeman replied, quote, there isn't going to be any concert, unquote. While Pete was being told off by this policeman up at the gate, commotion was beginning to stir down below where the stage was set up. The concert was to be emceed by the novelist Howard Fast, who would publish his book Spartacus just a couple of years later. Fast had been asked to present the concert just over a week before, as he just happened to be vacationing in Peekskill that month with his family. Earlier that day before arriving, he had been informed by two concert organizers that there might be trouble at the show. Fast expressed he could not believe that, but he spoke too soon. At just after 7 p.m. that evening, after Fast showed up and was getting ready, a boy had run down to tell Fast and the other organizers, who were mostly trade union workers from New York City, that an angry mob had formed at the gate in protest of the fact that Robeson was going to sing. Fast and dozens of others ran up the hill to see what was going on and noticed a pile of rocks and a truck were parked in front of the gate, locking everyone in. Fast and other concert organizers were met by 700 veterans, men in American Legion caps, and KKK members who charged down the hill at the concert organizers and picnickers awaiting the performance. In his book about the event, Peak Skill USA, Howard Fast explains how he tried to talk the mob out of attacking everyone there on the hill, but to no avail. Fast sent a messenger down to where concert goers were that all women and children were to get up onto and around the stage and every other able-bodied person was to come up to hold off the mob. Forty-two men, both black and white, locked arms to stop the mob getting closer to the stage and formed a blockade, 
singing the labor anthem, We Shall Not Be Moved. Anti-immigrant, anti-Semitic, anti-black, and pro-Nazi epithets were shouted by the drunken mob as they wielded rocks, billy clubs, bottles, knives, broken fence posts, and brass knuckles going after the concert attendees. In an amazing feat, Fast and the concert goers held back the mob for over two hours as they continued to attack in waves, stopping them from advancing further and attacking and possibly killing concert goers down below. Robeson had been warned ahead of time, and as such was nowhere in the vicinity when this attack happened. While newspaper reporters and camera people had shown up to document the carnage in real time, the police did little to stop this onslaught from occurring. By this point, dusk had set in, and as it got darker, the angry protesters set fire to all the song pamphlets, the stage, and the concert programs, as well as the 1,000 rented folding chairs that no one ended up sitting in. Then the mob burned a cross in the picnic grounds and lynched Robeson in effigy. At this point, after Fast and dozens of others were beaten and bleeding, the mob seemingly cut and ran, disappearing into the darkness. Waiting in uncertainty until after 10 p.m., state troopers and Westchester County Police showed up at the picnic grounds. The state troopers continued to hold everyone, including the women and children, there at the bottom of the grounds and still would not let them go, believing that one of the mob members had been knifed by someone there. Word eventually came through, though, that the man had been knifed by one of his own comrades in the drunken heat of battle. Eventually, the troopers' emotions changed, and they let everybody leave. To Howard Fast's astonishment, his was one of the few cars that had not been destroyed that evening. Where was Pete Seeger in all this? Well, he saw something was up and didn't stick around for the impending violence. He turned around with his mother and drove home just as the attack was getting started. Later that week, the local district attorney in Westchester, a man named Finelli, publicly stated that it was not the counter-protesters that caused the violence, but the concert organizers, much to the satisfaction of the veterans who perpetrated the attacks. A few days later, the Civil Rights Congress held a meeting in New York City about how to respond to everything, which Pete attended. Robeson addressed the organization directly, stating that he wanted another chance, and that they all deserved to be able to access the right to freedom of speech and assembly. Given a rousing consensus for this, the concert was rescheduled for the coming Sunday, September 4th of Labor Day weekend. Members of the Congress and People's Artists had actually gone to court and filed an injunction in an attempt to make any counter-demonstration illegal, if the mob were to show up again. The case was heard just before recess at the end of that Friday afternoon, with the judge throwing out the injunction, saying there was no evidence to suggest that any counter-demonstrators would be violent or unruly. The new Sunday show wasn't going to be an evening one this time, but a mid-afternoon affair, starting at around 2.30 p.m. and going till just after 4. Now security was to be tighter, as Robeson's and everyone else's safety was of greatest concern. Help had been sought from the longshoremen and electrical workers' unions, who were to stand on the stage around Robeson as he sang so no one could take a shot at him, as well as maintain the perimeter around the fields where the audience was located. In Peekskill, USA, Howard Fast explains that this had been essential, as a couple of union men doing security had found veterans with guns hiding out in the woods that morning, who were looking for a good vantage point to take a shot at Robeson. The union folks had suggested to Fast 
that they put the sound truck in front of a big oak tree in addition, in order to provide more protection for Robeson because of this concern. Over in Beacon, that morning of the 4th, the Seeger family was trying to make a decision. Would they bring Pete and Toshi's two young children, who were three and one, respectively, to the show? Toshi's father, Takashi, warned against it, saying it could be dangerous. Toshi stated that she wanted to protect her children, and Pete felt as if whatever happened was something the children should be there to witness. Takashi was reluctant, but the family went along with Pete's plans. Also visiting and coming along was Mario Cassetta and his girlfriend Greta Brody, so this amounted to seven people crowded into the Seeger's Jeep wagon. By now, because of all the publicity, the Sunday concert was expected to be much larger than the failed show on the 27th. It is estimated that there were between 10 and 20,000 attendees at the new venue, the former Hollowbrook Country Club, which was actually located over in Cortland Manor. Because of how public everything had become, there were buses upon buses of state troopers brought in, somewhere around 900 total troopers who were drilling in the concert grounds. When the Seegers arrived, there was a counter-protesting crowd gathered at the entrance, but people seemed to be able to get in okay. The unhappy Peekskill and Westchester residents were singing their own song that day, and the words went, quote, Roll out the commies, we've got the Reds on the run. Roll out the commies, the cleanup has only begun. Roll out the barrel, let's sing a song of good cheer, till the vodka boys were marching, and were marching over here, unquote. On the one hand, we could say that these are of course just words, but they did foreshadow what was to come later that afternoon. At the concert, there were several opening acts. The black singer Hope Foy, Leonid Hambro, who played pieces by Prokofiev and Ravel, pianist Ray Lev, and the singer Sylvia Kahn, who sang the Star Spangled Banner. Seeger played a couple of songs, one of which was a new tune he and Lee Hayes had recently put together called If I Had a Hammer. Robeson then took the stage and sang for about an hour. His set included the spiritual Go Down Moses and the Yiddish freedom song, Song of the Warsaw Ghetto, and of course, Old Man River, for which he included the lines, quote, I'll keep fighting till I'm dying, unquote. The concert concluded a bit early at 10 minutes past four, and people began to leave. Organizers and concert attendees were congratulating themselves on a successful event free of violence, but unfortunately, they spoke too soon. As people in their cars headed back towards the exit, they encountered a problem in trying to get out. Let's listen to a documentary clip of Pete explaining the debacle that occurred. For those seeking the source, this dialogue of Seeger speaking comes from an interview conducted in July 2012 by filmmaker Eileen Newman and is fully available on YouTube. I let other people go first because I lived only 12 miles away. They were going a lot further than that. And so I let other cars go first. And when I got to the gate, I wanted to turn left. But the policeman at the gate says, no, all cars go to the right. I said, but I, I live up this direction. He says, all cars go to the right. I see some glass in the road. And I say to the family, uh, be prepared to duck. Somebody may throw a stone. Well, that was the understatement of the year. Because around the corner was a pile of stones, each about as big as a tennis ball. Uh, some as small as a golf ball, maybe. But uh, there was a young man standing right near this pile, 
went wham with all his force at every single car that passed. And we were about 30 or 40 feet away from each other. And then the road was a, a weaving road. We, we went around a, a curve to the right, and there was a pile of stones on the right, and a young man throwing stones from there. I think there must have been 10 or 15 piles of stones because our Jeep station wagon had three windows on each side and it had a divided windshield and they were all broken. Ten windows were broken. So there must have been at least 10 piles and I think 15 or perhaps more piles because some of them were broken more than once. Two of the stones came right through the windows into our little uh, Jeep station wagon and I later on cemented them into a fireplace I was building. One is a little round stone and the other is a chunk of tarmac. It's a tar with gravel that breaks off the edge of a road. There was a policeman standing right next to the road. Just 40 feet away was a stone thrower. I tried to roll the window down, but it was so splintered I couldn't get it more than an inch down. And I hollered, officer, aren't you going to do something? And all he said was, move on, move on. In other words, he knew all about it. While all of these attacks were perpetrated against any given concert goer, black individuals were targeted with particular intensity. According to Seeger, Robeson himself was actually one of the first to leave, being strategically moved between several cars before getting into a van and getting out without anyone knowing where he really was. But Robeson's son, Paul Robeson Jr., was also targeted. Let's listen to this clip of Seeger explaining this near miss. Just a fair warning though, while it's used in context of course, there is some language here that might be offensive to some. Paul Robeson Jr. barely escaped with his life. His wife is white. Another African-American man with a white woman with him were driving through the town of Peekskill and a mob stopped their car. They could not uh, go forward. They stopped their car, dragged the man out and said, Let's, this is Paul Robeson Jr., let's string him up. And until somebody, oh no, you got the wrong nigger, that's not Paul Robeson Jr. And, uh, oh, let's string him up anyway. No, you got to string up the right nigger. Like many others there, Seeger hadn't anticipated this level of violence, nor how well organized the counter-protesters were going to be. He had had eggs thrown at him in the South during the Wallace campaign, but this was New York State. This assumption, of course, was not unique to Seeger, as most were caught off guard when they were attacked that day. In the Seeger car, Takashi had grabbed his grandson and covered him on the floor as glass went flying. After having a small boulder cast right into their windshield, Cassetta's girlfriend Greta was hit square in the head by a rock that came flying through the now cracked window. Eventually, when they got through the minefield of rocks strewn about the road at the end of the run, the Seekers stopped to take account of the damage they had incurred. As Mario Cassetta explains, the group approached a few people who were standing around and asked them for help. This is what happened there. Quote, We asked, do you know the nearest hospital? And they all started laughing and cackling. Cackling. I remember one woman rocking back and forth and slapping her knees like she'd heard a good joke like I imagine Nazis would have been in those early street gang days in Berlin. 
all the way into the Bronx, more than 20 miles, you could see injured a long, bloody alley. Unquote. The Seegers got beat up for sure, but it was worse for many others. As they drove on, the Seegers observed the counter-demonstrators stopping cars and dragging people out of them, beating them to a pulp, and then flipping over some of the cars. Police and state troopers also participated in this, and knocked out many concert-goers with their blackjacks. Photographers even captured New York State troopers beating and clubbing Eugene Ballard, a famously decorated World War I black aviator. In addition to those in their cars, people trying to get out on buses were largely trapped. Ronnie Gilbert was stuck on one of these standing room-only coaches, where a young man outside was winding up like a baseball pitcher, throwing stone after stone at the bus in the windows. The state troopers had actually forced the bus drivers to park their buses outside the concert grounds before the performance, which was likely intentional. Many of the people arriving on buses were black, and the spatial positioning of the buses by police required these attendees to walk further to and from the show, resulting in them being out in the open more, and were therefore more prone to being attacked. The following is a clip of footage taken of the counter-demonstrators, which again has dialogue that may be offensive to some listeners. This is some of the actual vulgar language being shouted by the angry veterans. There's a group of young boys here yelling at the people stopped in their cars. There are hundreds and hundreds of people here, and if there's a serious outbreak, it will be very bad. Ultimately, the counter-demonstrators continued the violence all the way back down to New York City at 210th Street and Broadway. Some were even heaving stones from overpasses at random cars, not even being able to be sure if those people were at the concert. So, what happened in the aftermath of all this? The next day, District Attorney Finelli commended the police on having done a, quote, magnificent job, unquote. In terms of legal accountability, none of the perpetrators from the angry counter-demonstrator mob from either the August 27th or the September 4th event were held accountable. Howard Fast and Paul Robeson filed a civil suit against Westchester County and two veterans' organizations later that September but the case was dismissed in 1952. Eighty-three victims of the violence filed suit against officials of Westchester County on grounds of negligence in stopping the violence, in total for over $20,000 in damages, but these charges were also dismissed. 300 people even went to the state capitol building in Albany, demanding to meet with Governor Thomas Dewey, who refused to speak to them, blaming the event on the, quote, communist who provoked the violence, unquote. Due to pressure from the ACLU, Progressive Party, groups of clergymen, the American Jewish Congress, the National Lawyers Guild, professors, and the press, 
Dewey was forced to open a grand jury investigation into September 4th. He charged the jury with specific instructions, though, telling them that their job was to consider whether the breach of peace that day had been, quote, part of the communist strategy to foment racial and religious hatreds, unquote. Fanelli was somehow named the neutral observer. 250 witnesses had been brought in by October, and the conclusion by the jury was the following. The communists had fomented the, quote, religious and racial hatred, unquote. But the violence was also, quote, neither anti-Semitic nor anti-Negro in character, unquote. The grand jury report concluded that the cross that was burned on August 27th was, quote, an unfortunate prank by a few teenage boys and had no relation to the Ku Klux Klan or any other anti-social or anti-religious organization, unquote. State investigators also refer to this as, quote, an unfortunate prank, unquote. The grand jury investigation's general characterization of the events was that communism alone was to blame. As the investigation report stated, quote, these strong armed forces, whose militant strength was revealed in the security guard at Cortland, must be recognized for what they are, the shock troops of a revolutionary force which is controlled by a foreign power and committed to methods and ultimate ends incompatible with our constitutional system." Unquote. As Aaron J. Leonard emphasizes about this excerpt in his book The Folk Singers and the Bureau, American communists were equivalent to a military force, and whatever violence they incurred for whatever reason was justifiable. Locally, the Peekskill Evening Star editorialized the event by describing it as akin to the Boston Tea Party, and the rioters were equivalent to the Sons of Liberty. In terms of how the rest of the country interpreted these events, many newspapers across the country expressed horror at what had occurred those days in the Hudson River Valley. For about a month after Labor Day weekend, the rioters from the Westchester community felt as if they were on top, and plastered their bumpers with stickers that said, Communism is treason. Behind communism stands the Jews. Also on bumper stickers, gas stations, storefront windows, and home windows was another slogan, which read, Wake up America, Peekskill did. Let's hear Pete explain where this fascist phrase came from. They had signs like the size of a bumper, of a bumper sticker, about 20 inches wide and 6 inches high, said, Wake up America, and underneath, Peekskill did. They were all over Peekskill. Uh, they were on shop windows. They were on uh, people's homes in the windows. They were uh, on bumper stickers of cars. They were in gas stations. Wake up America, Peekskill did. Well, in Europe, that's what it meant. Break a window of a Jewish shop shopkeeper. Uh, wake up Germany, Munich did. They started Kristallnacht and the signs went up all through Germany. Kristallnacht literally means Night of Crystal, but refers to the quote-unquote Night of Shattered Glass, which occurred in Germany and Austria in November 1938, when Jewish stores and homes were smashed in, and tens of thousands of Jewish people were rounded up and sent off to prison and death camps. The phrase, Wake Up America, Peekskill did, was a slogan essentially used during these Nazi campaigns, literally translated as Deutschland erwachen, or Germany awake. One part of this whole affair is that it illustrates what certain anti-communist and pro-fascist factions looked like in the post-war period. 
David Dunaway, in his biography of Seeger, suggests that the veterans, American legionnaires, and KKK affiliates that perpetrated the attacks were not mobsters, but rather were alienated individuals and families that had not experienced major prosperity after coming home from World War II. As Paul Robeson Jr. stated in an interview in 1998 about the event, these people were not just thugs, but were, quote, ordinary people whipped up in hysteria, unquote. Much of their alienation had to do with blacks being organized into unions, however. The eventual expulsion of black and left-wing workers from the CIO was later lauded by the leader of Peekskill's American Legion chapter that November. Thus, the rioters' ideology is rooted in ignorant anti-communism, but moreover, there is a material cause of all this. It is well documented that scarcity of jobs began to become more prevalent as northern manufacturers had begun relocating to the south after the war for cheaper labor, the type of problem endemic to capitalism. Issues like this are regularly fuel for fascism. Whether or not the label mobster is appropriate to describe the rioters in this context is up for debate, but certainly these individuals and groups can be identified as being products of economic alienation, and given the comments and motivations behind the attacks, the terminology of fascist definitely cannot be ignored. While it was shocking to see, at the same time, that these events could transpire in the United States, at the end of the day, it isn't really a shock. Howard Fast later explained that he couldn't believe what he saw that week, but it revealed a reality to him he hadn't fully appreciated. In a 78 RPM record that Seeger, Fast, and others from People's Artists recorded and put out chronicling the peak skill events, the audio of what the fascists were shouting at the concert attendees is overlain with Howard Fast saying, that's the sound of fascism, not in Germany, but here in America. Remember it. Then without any warning, the rocks began to come. The cops and troopers laughed to see the damage that was done. They ran us through a gauntlet to their everlasting shame And the cowards there attacked us, damnation to their name Hold the line, hold the line As we held the line at Peekskill, we will hold it everywhere Hold the line, hold the line We will hold the line forever till there's freedom In future decades, Pete would go on to speak about how hate causes these problems, but for what it is worth, we perhaps need to look at the now. It isn't necessarily a stretch to say that the fascist attacks at Peekskill in 1949 are somewhat reminiscent of the events of not only Charlottesville in 2017, but also of January 6, 2021 at the U.S. Capitol. Firstly, it's incredible that seemingly nothing has been written within the public discourse comparing Peekskill to January 6th. But what is maybe different now is that we live in a world today where hate is more of an effect than a cause. We can acknowledge that while hate motivates people, you don't have to hate people in order to subjugate and exploit them. While they are not 100% one and the same, similar ideologies were arguably present at Peekskill and on January 6th, as well as some of the same identity groups. For anyone who was shocked by January 6th, believing that it couldn't happen in the United States, then maybe those people should think about U.S. history a little bit more. 
If one looks, one will see that it has indeed happened before. And to be surprised is to be ignorant about what the fundamental issues are that cause these problems. Those who are economically alienated and support people who don't represent their interests is a phenomenon that has been socially reproduced time and time again. Now, to be appropriately critical of Seeger and Hayes' songwriting, it's perhaps a catchy topical song, Hold the Line, but that Labor Day weekend in 1949 wasn't necessarily a time that the line was held, outside of maybe just getting out alive. But to what extent are we holding the line today? And looking at peak skill and thinking of it relative to the contemporary era, and I say this not just to listeners in the United States, but to all listeners tuning in from around the world, that what we perhaps need to take away is that we continue to allow ideologically centrist political establishments to be in power that are ignorant and will not commit to solving these issues on a structural and material level, thus allowing fascism to continue. All this, of course, is not to put down Pete and Lee's song completely. As always, Seeger and Hayes leave us with a reminder of hope in the chorus when they say, quote, We will hold the line forever till there's freedom everywhere. I get weary and sick of trying. I'm tired of living and scared of dying. But at the end again thank you all for joining us for this episode um this of course just focuses really on one single set of events and there is so much detail about it um i learned about the peak skill riots i think back when i was in sixth grade but i have discovered that it is really an important event to acknowledge in general but pete seeger is a part of it and um part of his political socialization as someone who's now in his 30s and his prerogatives is defined by his experience with it. Um, and he was there and is a, an observer and um, his voice and observations um, should be acknowledged and speak to this event, which rarely do we talk about. It's one of those things that you miss maybe in your history class in high school. Um, so it's a very serious topic and on many levels it's a morbid topic, it's a depressing topic. Um, but I felt like it was part of the story and I wanted to include it. It felt wrong to skip over it or to not go into this level of depth. And I discovered that there is so much depth to the Peekskill riots and there is so much more um, that I haven't talked about here. Howard Fast's book has, of course, an endless amount of uh, first-hand accounts of everything. Um, so I encourage people to investigate this further and Howard Fast's book is a good way of investigating what this whole topic is. Um, uh, with the next episode, we're getting into the Weavers and um, the Blacklist. That'll be our next couple of episodes. And um, I have about four or five episodes planned right now um, that'll get us into the 60s, and it'll be about three or four or more before we get past the Blacklist. Um, that is the level of detail we're probably going to go into with all of that. Um, so I look forward to getting into that material. Um, 
And thank you all for joining us. Please consider joining the Patreon um, as a member. And there are some new tiers which are being added. If you're interested in having a community discussion, and if you're interested in reading my scripts, if you're interested in seeing my sources, um, and communicating with me further on those things, uh, that's another tier. Um, if you'd like to participate uh, in the There is a Season community on a greater level. Um, all of this takes some level of funding. Um, there is licensing that has to be taken care of for longer clips, and all that is made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Um, so just take that into consideration if you'd like to support the project. There is a Season, the Pete Seeger podcast, is produced, recorded, and written by Adam C. Morris. See you all next time.